This is a Federal News Network podcast. Recent cyber attacks have shown how shoddy software can grind an organization's operations to a halt, maybe hold you up for Bitcoin. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is trying to raise awareness of those software threats and ways to address them during April's Supply Chain Integrity Month. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the Acting Assistant Director for CIS's National Risk Management Center, Mona Harrington. So ICT systems underpin a broad range of critical infrastructure activities that support critical functions. So vulnerabilities in these systems and their critical hardware or software are exploited. The consequences can have devastating effects and cascading impacts across multiple organizations, sectors, and impact to the national critical functions. You know, CIS is highlighting the importance of using trusted suppliers and vendors when procuring ICT products and services. Organizations must take procurement seriously by checking to see how well they know their suppliers and vendors. After all, their risks are your risks and the supply chain is as strong as its weakest link. So to help organizations and businesses with the effort, CISA's ICT Supply Chain Risk Management Task Force developed many resources that can be helpful around the topic. This issue of the, the information communications technology supply chain concerns about it have existed for a few years now uh, pretty broadly. What kind of progress, though, have you seen in how organizations are actually adopting things like trusted suppliers lists and other tools? Because it's difficult, right? And it, it kind of takes some time and some resources to actually implement these practices. And I think it's been difficult for, for agencies and, and contractors and others to, to actually do this. So are you seeing progress here in 2022? And if so, where are you seeing that progress? So I would say that it is a very complicated issue. CISA's worked really hard to put out a lot of good material that can assist with the effort, but also the risks to the IC supply chain are evolving. And so the sophistication of the nature of the attacks and from which the adversaries can cause harm to organizations and nations is becoming more complex. And so you know, utilizing the materials that and the tools that CISA puts together to assist organizations and the awareness campaign that we're doing this month is incredibly important to assist as far as resources are concerned and to raise awareness. The task force that we have on supply chain also does a really good job bringing together private sector and government to find solutions to these difficult challenges that are evolving My hope is that we'll continue to see progress, but I don't think the work ever ends. It's an agile approach that must continue and and stay strong. Yeah, and and how are you seeing some of the risks to the ICT supply chain evolve? There's hardware, there's software, there's firmware, there's issues of provenance of source code, and there's just so many different risks that you can look at in the supply chain. What kind of evolution are you seeing there? Definitely, there's an increased number of cyber attacks and their sophistication, and they've revealed an evolving nature of the countless entries from which adversaries can cause harm and spread risks to multiple organizations and nations. Nation states seeking to cause harm to the United States, espionage, or stealing information have thousands of companies and entry points to choose from. You know, the government buys ICT from private industry, and while many of those companies know their direct suppliers, they may not know who their suppliers' suppliers are. 
for an adversary targeting those second or third tier suppliers with less mature information security controls is a way to target the government as well as other critical functions. Similarly, they may try to exploit new and emerging risks from telework heavy environments such as shortages in physical and IT security personnel and reduced access controls by service vendors. So you, you could see how the environment continues to evolve and the response has to continue to be agile. And on that point, I was wondering, how, how does this work to look at the ICT supply chain tie into the national critical functions effort, which is another really big initiative under your group for folks who aren't aware of kind of mapping risk throughout critical infrastructure? How, how do these two big initiatives tie together in your mind? So a couple of things around that. The National Risk Management Center is undertaking an analytically driven effort in partnership with the Department of Energy's national laboratories and sector risk management agencies to decompose each national critical function into its subfunctions and associated dependencies to systems, assets, and components just to really unpack and break it down and get a better picture of impact, cascading impact. And the NRMC's risk architecture capability will leverage the foundational data created via the decomposition that I was discussing earlier, that effort to build a network model of function and critical infrastructure dependencies and enable functions based risk analysis at national scale to support activities during both steady state and as incident response. You understand that ICT underpins so much of critical infrastructure, so each NCF connects together. And you came to the center after several years as executive director at the Election Assistance Commission. Can you tra- draw any parallels between the work that you did at the commission securing elections and now this much broader task of protecting elections and then all the other critical infrastructure sectors and functions across the country. Yeah, I have a cybersecurity and counterterrorism background. Who knew how useful that would be in elections? I served as the CISO over there and the CIO as well. And then I served as the executive director. A lot of what we do with elections is leaning forward, thinking through potential risk and how to mitigate that risk whether that's through best practices. You know, at the Election Assistance Commission, there's an entire clearinghouse program by mission that all they do is put out best practices to mitigate potential risk having to do with elections. They also have a robust testing and certification program where they work directly with two private labs on the cybersecurity posture based on the voluntary voting system guidelines of the voting machines themselves. So those voting machines that are used for voters to vote and can instill voter confidence are certified by the Election Assistance Commission. So all of that was within my purview. And so bringing some of that over, we have an election division also within the NRMC. And so I'm able to use a lot of my past risk mitigation strategies and cybersecurity background in my current role. It's very exciting. Mona Harrington, Acting Assistant Director of the National Risk Management Center, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity. 
and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do 
set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffel Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. 
Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.